Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask, Lord, that as we enter into this text that you would um, strengthen us, nurture us, guide us, convict us, shape us, Lord, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Allow me as your messenger to speak your truth, Lord, that your, your words would flow through these lips to your people and we would all be strengthened as a result of that. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Um, Mark's gospel is specifically a gospel about Jesus Christ. And that might sound very simplistic, but it's a reality that we need to remember that Mark is seeking to present Jesus Christ. And there's really three words that help us uh, as we go through Mark's gospel that Mark is seeking to answer. The first word is identity. The second word is mission. The third word is response. By identity, um, what Mark is seeking to help us with is to know who this Jesus actually is. And so he's giving us stories and encounters to shape our understanding as to who he is. The second word is, is mission. And we're answering the question there, what did Jesus then come to do? And Mark again gives us uh, this information and guidance and help on what he has come to do. But it is also about response. In other words, what are you going to do with this information about who Jesus is and what he has come to do? This is a gospel of Jesus Christ. This is written to encourage the saints, strengthen the believers, but also to evangelize those who would be there listening to this account of who Jesus is. And so this text is especially, the one that we're in today, is especially a how will you respond to this kind of text. Here we have a, a gospel uh, account, this, this text, with, or this account with Jesus and Bartimaeus, and it's an account that is in particular focusing on those who are still contemplating whether or not they're going to believe in this Jesus. And so this text is uniquely for you a call to respond. You've been listening and discovering some things about Christ. You've been recognizing your desperate condition. It's been on display in the pages of this gospel. You're blind, and Jesus is laying out proof of your blindness. And having examined it, he wants you then to come face to face with a question, will you believe? But it's not just for those who are contemplating Christ. It is also for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. We move on into discipleship, and we need our souls sharpened by the truth of God's word and the ongoing effect of the gospel. Now hear this, gospel texts are always a delight to a follower of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is this, if you are a follower of Christ and you come to a passage of scripture that is, here's the gospel, you don't say, oh, man, I've heard that before. No, you, you read and you, you listen and you are filled with delight because there's nothing sweeter than hearing once again the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this is for us. We need to hear this. We need to reflect once again on what Christ has done to change us from what we once were to what we are now. We were blind, but now we can see. But there's still some things that we are blind to. There's still some things that this world has a grip on us uh, with. And Mark has been taking us on a journey with Jesus. Yes? He began in his gospel by showing Jesus as one coming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. And he was calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. And he gathered his disciples, and we saw that he was teaching his disciples. But beginning at chapter 8, Jesus has been on a journey specifically to Jerusalem, and he, he is there pursuing Jerusalem, as we heard last week, to be that ransom for many. 
That has been where his focus has been on this journey. He knows where he's going, and he knows why he is going there. And Mark's account there in chapter 8 begins with, with him encountering a blind man, if you remember this. But it was a blind man that Jesus healed in two stages, which was very unusual. And what was unusual about that is Jesus was wanting to paint a picture of understanding for his disciples to recognize that they might see a little bit about what he's saying, but they've got what he's saying completely wrong. And that's why Peter rebukes Jesus, because Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be crucified, and three days later, I'm going to rise. And Peter doesn't like what he's hearing, because in his mind, what Jesus has come to do, yes, he understands who he is, but he doesn't understand what he has actually come to do. He's not come to be the the ruler of Israel, a military, mighty ruler. He's come to be the ransom for many. And so what's happening there at the beginning is Jesus wants to, 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 to take our fuzzy faith, in particular the disciples' fuzzy faith, and to to bring clarity to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and one who has truly uh, exercised belief and faith in him. And so on this journey, we have encountered a number of different circumstances where this faith has been challenged and it's growing. And three times on this journey, Jesus lays out what he has come to do. Three times he says very, very plainly and very, very boldly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again. It's interesting that he's just reinforcing these realities. And as Jesus is on this journey, he's asking his disciples and then us these questions. Do you see what it means to follow me? Do you see how you must come as a child totally dependent on me? Do you see what you must do? You must give up everything and follow me. Do you see what attitudes are primary in the kingdom? Not being in a position of rulership, but being a servant. Not pride, but humility. So Jesus is the suffering servant come to be the ransom for many, not this mighty emperor who's come to overthrow the enemy. You see, kingdom values and kingdom ethics are radically different from what you and I are used to. We hear lots of voices from our culture today. Some of the more prominent ones that are happening right now are, you are number one. You must think about yourself. You've got to step on people if you want to get ahead in life. Now, some people would deny that that's their attitude, but their actions show that it's true. Or you are the victim, so rise up and defeat those who are oppressing you. But the gospel of the kingdom requires total dependence on Christ, total abandon or letting go from what have been our idols or our our sources of satisfaction and security and a total humility. We're not looking or we're looking for nothing except to enter the kingdom of God by faith. There's, There's nothing that we're saying, God, look at me. Look at what I've done. That doesn't matter to him. So now as we come to this text, Jesus is driving home all that he has been saying on this journey. And what we have here is a a detailed account that, that just demonstrates that what is going on here is an eyewitness account. And probably Peter is the the eyewitness. There's vividness in this story. The journeying crowd, the blind beggar who's yelling, the people who are rebuking him, and the throwing off of his cloak. All these are details that help us understand that Peter likely is just remembering the specifics of these events. And so Mark wants us to see clearly what Jesus has been teaching so that 
we will respond in belief and follow him in discipleship. And as we look back at chapter 8 and that passage on the, this blind man, there Jesus challenged our fuzzy faith so that we could see clearly. Here, what we recognize is this to be the main emphasis of this text. Only Jesus can open our blind eyes and so we can see. But it's even more than that. Will you respond and believe the gospel? Now, friends, a gospel always demands a response. It's not good enough to say, well, I know who Jesus is, and I know what he came to do, and I can articulate both. The question is, how will you respond to those realities? You know, one of the, the, the probably the best known Christian hymn, which is sung all around the world in different contexts, many times with bagpipes. I'm giving you some clues to know what it is. It goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now I share that with you to help you understand that Wesley, when he's writing this song, not Wesley, Newton, when he's writing this song, understood that conversion is a move from blindness to sight. This, this image, this symbolism helps us understand our spiritual condition. So even as we go through the story, there is a, there's a surface human physical level to what's going on, but there are spiritual implications that are screaming from this text that Mark and Jesus want us to understand. He causes the blind to see. So what do we need to see? We need to see that we're blind, that we're hopeless, that we're helpless. And what do we need to believe? That he is the son of God who has come to restore us, to open our eyes and to set us free. And what is it that we need to do? Well, we need to respond by believing, by exercising faith in who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Now, let's just kind of think about the structure of this text. How does this unfold? Well, this unfolds in three parts. And these, these parts um, give us a structure, but they also give us a movement. And I just love the fact that, that these, these stories are always moving to a place. They're moving to a key statement. Or they're moving to a reality that, that is so helpful for us. You have the blind man, you have Jesus, and then you have the blind man's response to what Jesus is saying. But I want you to notice that there's a structure that is bracketed by two realities. At the beginning of this passage, we find this blind beggar, and his name is Bartimaeus, and he is sitting by the roadside or on the way. At the end of this passage, we have a seeing disciple. Same man. Bartimaeus is now not sitting on the side of the way. He's following Jesus on the way. So there's movement going on here. There's, there's, a, there's something that happens during the course of this encounter that this blind beggar is now walking with sight with Jesus along the way. And this, this theme of on the way or by the roadside is all through chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Now the setting here is Jericho. Jesus and the disciples and the crowd and Bartimaeus are, are there all in this context of Jericho. Let's just pick it up at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So just a little bit of shop talk here just to help us kind of comprehend. If you compare this story, because it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, and it's in Mark, there's some things that are actually different in each of the each of the Gospels there. One of the significant things is, I think Luke says this happened when he was entering into Jerusalem, and then Mark here says it's when he's leaving Jerusalem. 
my understanding is that historically, um, there were actually archaeological digs as well as uh, there was an awareness back in Jesus' day that there were actually two Jerichos. There's the old Jericho, there's the new Jericho, and the one was like half a mile from the other. So you could actually be entering and leaving into both Jerichos, if that makes any sense, right? Just It brings it all together. As well as, I believe, is that Matthew's gospel actually has two blind people that Jesus heals. That's no problem, because if there's two, then there's obviously one, and Mark is choosing here to focus on one. So there's no real comp, uh, nothing that's really conflicting here if you want to put the things together and seek to understand. And just let that be a point. Sometimes you see conflicts in Scripture, and some people can hold up and say, hey, there's a problem here, but if you actually step back and take some time to think it through, there's a logical reason why there's an apparent contradiction. And those contradictions really may not be what you think they are. Now, what's Mark emphasizing here at the beginning? He's emphasizing something about this blind beggar. First of all, notice, um, he's rather insignificant. And even his name tells tells us that he's significant. His name is what? Bar Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus. And you have that laid out here for us in the text, right? The son of Timaeus. Now, would you rather be known by your name or just the fact that you're the son of your father? You see what I'm saying? It's more, he's like, his significance comes even from his father rather than his own name. He's blind, we're told. But it's not just that he's blind, but he's a blind man and he's a beggar. And what is he doing? He's sitting on the roadside. Now, this might remind you of some people that you've come into contact with or that you have seen. That man or woman that you see at that intersection who's standing there with a little sign that says homeless and hungry, you know, in disheveled clothes. And I realize in our context, there are people that do that kind of stuff and they're, you know, they're taking you for a ride because their car is around the corner and that kind of stuff and you're really hesitant about what you want to do. Or maybe you've been to other countries. I've been to Bolivia. I've been to places like Russia, obviously in in Ukraine. And in particular in Bolivia, you see a lot of this. And you go more into the downtown areas, you're going to see a lot more people who are begging. Literally, they're just kind of hunched in a corner. They're laying their, their, their little garment down and hoping that you'll, you'll put something in there to help them along the way, some, some monetary value, something along. Just they're, 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 they're looking for the mercy and the kindness of others to, to come their way. And it's a, it's a horrible thing because, you know, if, if your conscience is... Is, is really open and really sensitive, you're not going to be able to go far in the city because all you're going to be doing is going from beggar to beggar to beggar. Now, you also just kind of get the picture here. What we have is one account, and, and, and Jesus doesn't go to all the people who are blind and all the people that are begging. He is homing in on this one particular person, and we're going to see why that is the case. So just kind of get the sense of, of what is going on here. So let's begin now by looking at this text and, and seeing, first of all, the cry of a desperate Man, the cry of a desperate man. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. First of all, I just want us to consider the voices that Bartimaeus heard, the voices that he heard. Bartimaeus, like so many other poor, miserable, sick, and blind people, has positioned himself along the main road to Jerusalem. Now, what is going on right now? People are going to Jerusalem because they're going to celebrate Passover. So we're talking about thousands of people that are coming from the Jordan area over through Jericho into Jerusalem. There's just a mass of people. Now, you might have thought there were lots of crowds marching yesterday for life. There were crowds marching into Jerusalem. And what do you do if you are a poor person? You go to where the people are. If you're going to be begging, you go to where the people are and you hope, you find yourself a spot and you hope that people will be kind. This might have been a a good day for people because people are joyful. They're singing the songs that they sing the songs of ascent to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So there's a joyful attitude, and people tend to be generous during those times. 
And there he is on the side of the road, and he, he's laid out his cloak, and he's, he's laid it out so that money or, or, or maybe some pieces of food can be placed there out of kindness and mercy for him. And while he's sitting there, what, what voices is he hearing? He hears, first of all, voices that say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Now, these are the voices of the people in the crowd, These are the voices of the people who have heard about Jesus, who are coming from places maybe where Jesus has ministered. And if you remember up in Galilee, Jesus has been around and crowds were following him. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. And as he began his journey, what do we find out? He heals a blind man. And all these people are just talking about this miracle worker from Nazareth. But if you hear that he heals uh, even a blind man, what do you think Bartimaeus is probably thinking to himself? If he can heal that man, then certainly he can heal me. And there's something about Bartimaeus that he's aware of a little bit what this person Jesus is all about, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But can you imagine what he's thinking what would, what would your heart be saying as you heard these people talk like this? I'm sure it would be filling up with hope. Or would it be fighting the battle of not wanting to hope only to have your hope dashed once again? Or would it be cynical? Would it be cold? Would it be bitter? But what we see in the story is that Bartimaeus is moved to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the first voice, Jesus is coming. But notice the other voice that he hears, and it's a voice again from the crowd, and it's a, it's a voice of rebuke. It's a voice that's saying, be silent. Or, and kids, plug your ears, shut your mouth. You have no business crying out to this rabbi for help. They're words of rebuke. In other words, you just need to keep silent. You have no place crying out to him for mercy. Now, you could almost see the comparison in this encounter with that of the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. Because if you remember, the rich young ruler was like the the prize picture of, of what Jewish men should look like. He was the prized specimen. Certainly, he has the right to come running up to Jesus and ask him a question. But here, you have this blind beggar. And in the crowd's minds, he has no rights, not even to appeal to this miracle work. And we've got to place ourselves in the context of that day. Unfortunately, there was an attitude that saw man's condition, excuse me, man's condition as a reflection of the sin of the parents or grandparents or even their own sin. And so there was the disdain many times for those who were poor. You could have compassion but also have a disdain. You could throw some money, but still recognize, you know what, I need to keep myself away and say, you are experiencing what you deserve, so be quiet. In their eyes, Bartimaeus is poor, miserable, blind. But once again, we see kingdom logic and earthly logic are polar opposites. They are at war with each other. And those in the crowd still didn't get what the kingdom was about. But that doesn't stop Bartimaeus at all. In fact, if anything, it emboldens him to cry out all the more. Now hear this. No one is too insignificant to Jesus to command his attention. There is no one in this room, there's no one here in Castro Valley, there's no one in the world that is too insignificant that when they cry out to Jesus that he'll just turn away and say, you have no right. A leper, a woman with a hemorrhage, little children, a blind man, they are all 
significant to Christ. Now, having said that, the gospel strips away man's feelings of his own significance. And it points him to his utter insignificance so that he can see his need for spiritual healing. See, this this man was no different than the rich young ruler in the sense of significance or insignificance. In fact, he was probably at a better place because he didn't have all this stuff to hold on to. We looked at the, the voices. Now, consider the words that Bartimaeus cried out. Notice the boldness in how Bartimaeus speaks He cried out. This was a a desperate appeal. This wasn't like a, hey, could you maybe get him to come over? No, this was a, hey, 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 Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you can imagine, you ever seen someone who's blind talking, walking and talking? It's a little awkward for us because we see it, but there's, there's, there's this Abandoned, they don't care. They're, they're just going to talk. They're going to speak, and that's what he does here. This was a desperate appeal from the mouth of a desperate man. He knows his condition. He knows that his opportunity for healing is right in front of him. This is not a time to go home and think about it. This is not a time for reflection or, or seeking to overcome his fears. This is a time to act. It's either now or never. The opportunity is before him, and he cries out. And when the voices in the crowd rebuke him and tell him to be silent, he is not moved. He's going to cry out even more. Now, friends, hear this. There will always be voices of opposition. They'll always be there trying to put you down, trying to discourage you to exercise your faith in Christ. Now, they think that they're smart. They think that they're doing you a favor. They think that they're keeping you from some weird, radical, religious stuff. But they're wrong. And when the gospel reaches the heart of a desperate person, they face up to those who are discouraging them. They face their fears because faith overcomes fear. Belief in Christ is drowned out, or is drowning out, I should say, the belief of mankind. And hope that is in Christ's power is a hope that begins to heal because it's been evidenced by work that Jesus Christ has already done. This is the, do you see who Jesus is? Do you see what he has done? And this is what he can do for you kind of faith. Others who are poor, others who are miserable, others who are blind, who now have experienced the grace of God. And friends, I grew up in a Christian home. I am privileged to say that that's true of me. And I went to church because my parents forced me to go to church. Anyone like that? You know, a number of people, right? But then I rebelled. And I wouldn't go to church. I wouldn't darken the door of a church. In fact, there are some days that I would get up early so I could escape the house so I wouldn't have to go with my parents and face this confrontation. And there are times my parents had home group in the house and they would be downstairs in the living room and they'd be singing songs and having Bible studies and I would be with my friends upstairs in my room and we'd be laughing at them. While they're singing, we'd be up there mocking their singing, laughing at them. But friends, when I was 16, I came to the United States. My father retired from British Airways, and we moved to the United States. And my dad became a pastor. In one sense, I went from bad to worse, right? And here I was, the son of a pastor. But as I entered school, I went to a public school. I wasn't there a week, and I was already in the drug culture. You know, welcome to America, right? And I got pulled into the drug culture, and, and that became the pursuit of my life, meaning that's, that's what my friends wanted to do. If I had money, what was it? Let's, let's go get high. Let's go get this. Let's go get that. But life was empty. 
I mean, there was, there was a point in which, yeah, there was some fun that, that came with it, but my life ultimately was empty. It wasn't going anywhere. And I, I desperately, in my heart, wanted to get out of this, this kind of, um, I don't know what you call this, this wheel, right? And there's one thing that I knew that I could do that would, would help me to get out of that. I knew that I could kick a soccer ball. I mean, I grew up in England, all right? And so I knew I could do that. And, and if I could get on a team, it would give me an opportunity to say, listen, I can't do these drugs because I'm on a team. And if I'm on a team and my coach finds out that I do drugs, I'm going to get kicked off the team, all right? A weak man's argument. But it was at least a way that God put in my heart some thinking. So I ended up looking for a school that played soccer. And it came down to two schools, a Catholic school and a Christian school. Now, at that point in time, I didn't care if I had to sit in a theology class. My dad looked at me and says, are you going to be okay with this? I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'd be happy to do that. Okay. But I ended up choosing the Christian school over the Catholic school, simply because if I went to the Catholic school, I had to learn Polish. I didn't want to learn Polish, all right? You know, I, I can get a Puszki anytime. You know, that's all you need to know. But, I, you know, you don't need to learn Polish. So I ended up going to the Christian school and started to go to practice. And what I found out was that the coach was also the youth pastor. And every day at practice, before we began, he'd open up the Bible and he would share from Scripture. And he was at the beginning of the year making sure that we understood the gospel. And then, and of course, this whole time I know, I'm just thinking, okay, there's something going on here. And I could feel, you know, could feel the, 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 the pressure of what he was saying on my heart. And then there was a chapel that we had, and he was speaking, and he was talking about the difficulty of, of being the son of a pastor and trying to live out. And, of course, I'm a son of a pastor and all this kind of stuff. And it was clear as he presented the gospel, the gospel that day, excuse me, that God was just saying, Rod, it's now. It's now. It's now. And he said, call that a feeling or call that conviction. <laughs> It was God who was working in my heart. Now, friends, what, I, what I'm trying to, to say here and sharing a little bit of my testimony with you is this, that even as I was hearing the good news of the gospel, there were voices bouncing around in my head, voices of my friends saying things, what are you doing? Don't you want to have fun anymore? I mean, what's, what's going on with you? You can be a Christian, but you don't have to be that kind of a Christian. I mean, you can go to church every once in a while. It's okay. We don't mind that. But we still want to have fun together, right? Or I thought you thought that this religion stuff was ridiculous. And I had said things like that. But God had other plans for me. <laughs> Look, I knew that God was calling me to come. And I stood up. And after the service, I went to speak with my coach. And he just helped solidify the things that were going on in my heart. And that day, Jesus breathed new life into this wretched man. I was born again. I was blind. But at that moment, I began to see the voices didn't go away. But the beauty of the gospel began to grow and grow and grow. The day I cried out for mercy is the day that he saved me. Now, friends, these voices are there. But here, Bartimaeus, he's crying out, and he's crying out because he knows his condition. He's crying out to the right person. Notice, secondly, here, the clarity in what Bartimaeus is actually saying. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the first time we get this title, this recognition, son of David. He uses the Old Testament designation, son of David. Now, we, we saw that as we studied through First and Second Samuel, how God rose uh, David to the place of being a king. He was the man after God's own heart, meaning that God was the one who was raising David. It's not saying that, oh, David was such a great guy. He loved the Lord so much, that's why God chose him. No, 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 no. That's not how it worked. He was the result of God at work in him. And he raised him up to be king. At the end of the book of Ruth, we, we end the book of Ruth with David. <laughs> and what we realize is that there's something going on with this person, David. And ultimately what happens is that God makes a covenant with David that through his seed, he will restore people 
to himself. And it's the promise then of this coming son of David. So you have to think to yourself, what is it that Bartimaeus already knows? He knows about the promise of the son of David. And in his, in his heart, he is already recognizing, based on what he has heard about who Jesus is, that this is the son of David. And so he is crying out boldly and with clarity, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen to the promise that Isaiah gives about this son of David. Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, when, when, when this son comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So he's crying out for healing hope. And he's crying out to the Messiah, but he's also crying out for mercy. He recognized he didn't deserve anything from Jesus, the son of David. He knows that this hope is rooted in mercy and mercy alone. It's a favor that God gives out of his kindness to those who are desperate. And that's what we have all experienced if we're followers of Christ. So we've seen here this cry of a desperate man. This is the foundation. This is the largest, I might say, concentration of our focus this morning. But now let's move to the call of a merciful rabbi, the call of a merciful rabbi. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And he threw off his cloak, and he sprang up and came to Jesus. Notice, first of all, the call of Jesus. Now, I, think, I think the beginning of verse 49 is probably uh, one of the places that just caused me to ponder for a little bit. It says, and Jesus stopped. <laughs> Those are precious words. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, the one who is on his journey to go to Jerusalem to die on a cross and be raised the third day, that, friends, is the most important journey ever. And while he is on that journey, what does he do? He hears the cry of this desperate, blind beggar, and he stops. (laughs) He stops because he wants now to interact with him. So Jesus speaks presumably to his disciples and says, call him. And three times in verse 49, we have this this expression, call him. They called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Now Jesus is not calling him to discipleship yet. He's simply calling him to a conversation. But even to be called by this miracle worker, by this one who's been identified as the son of David, this for this beggar to be called is is an incredible, amazing turn of events. And it reinforces the fact that Jesus is never, ever, ever interrupted by the cry of a desperate heart for mercy. He is one who always welcomes that desperate cry from a desperate heart. Notice, secondly, the comfort of disciples is something I think that is pretty beautiful here. What's different here is how the disciples are speaking to the blind beggar as compared to the rebuke that he was hearing from the crowds. They say, take heart. Get up. He's calling you. I mean, one moment he's sitting on the side of the road, hopeless and helpless. The next, he's being called by the disciples of Christ to take heart, to get up and that he is calling you. There's a gentleness in the tone now. Before it was rebuke. Stay silent. Now it's come, get up. He's calling you. There's something in this contrast that we need to consider. Is our tendency to in some way, shape, or form be the kind of person that rebukes? discourages or is it to welcome 
And sometimes we can, even in the gathering of a church, we can be more concerned about the things that we want to see, the things that are important to us, and maybe, you know, this person's going to be a distraction, or this person might come in off the street and they smell, or this person's a little bit different. And We don't have a welcoming attitude. We have kind of a rebuking attitude by our looks and by the places, you know, we might get up and move because we don't want to be around them and stuff like that. What is going on in us? What's happening in our Hearts. Do you remember how the disciples had been rebuking the people that were bringing the children to Jesus? Thinking that they were speaking for Jesus, thinking that they knew what was best. And in this text, the crowd who thinks they know what is best, that Jesus can't be bothered with the likes of a blind beggar. But what we find here are the disciples listening to and responding to the instructions of Jesus. And their words are gentle, they're hopeful, and they're encouraging. Friends, do you think you know what is best when you encounter other people? Or are you humble enough to recognize that you still need the wisdom of Christ, his gospel, and his word to guide your heart and your words? We must, friends, be disciples who are always asking the question, Lord, how do you want me to respond in this situation with this person that will glorify you? Lord, what do you want me to say? And friends, this is one of the problems with, you might want to say, cookie-cutter evangelism. Just say these few things. Because sometimes it's all about getting through the process than it is about caring for the person. (laughs) Jesus cares for this blind beggar. He cares for all of us. And here we have the example of disciples listening and following the instructions of their master. But notice third, the cloak of the blind beggar. How does Bartimaeus respond to the words of the disciples? Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Here we have Bartimaeus willingly abandoning himself and throwing himself on the mercy of Jesus. Now here, understand this. He didn't have much, but he did have a cloak. And that cloak was typically used to catch all the stuff that you received when you were begging. So there's something very symbolic here that this was a representation of his life and he's throwing it away and he's coming and he is simply placing himself on the mercy of Jesus. That cloak was like this pallet of collection. It was his guitar case, so to speak. But he throws it off and now he comes to Jesus. My friends, this is A beautiful picture, a wonderful picture of what happens when Jesus calls and and we listen and we respond. But now, as we turn the corner even further in the story, notice the cure then of this radical gospel, this cure of the radical gospel. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now we so often view the gospel of Jesus Christ as an easy gospel. And it is. We saw that with the children coming to Jesus just in simple desperation, saying, I'm here, I have nothing, receive me. But the gospel is also a hard gospel because there are some things that you and I must do. Now, these are not works in order to earn salvation, but these are things that we do in responding to the gospel. We must repent of our sins. We must believe wholeheartedly and unreservedly in Jesus Christ. We must be willing to give up all that we have and come and follow him. And here in this encounter, Jesus isn't making it easy for Bartimaeus, is he? On one level, it almost seems like he's being a little mean. Can't you see that this man's blind, Jesus? I mean, can't you see that he's a beggar? Can't you see that he's been despised by people all of his life? Why make it so hard for him? 
Remember, in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler who came asking the right question, Jesus still challenged him where it hurt. And that man did not respond favorably because he had great possessions. You can imagine Bartimaeus standing in front of Jesus, thankful that Jesus had called him, hopeful that he would be receiving mercy from the son of David himself. And then Jesus speaks, verse 51, and he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? My friends, this is a hard question. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus had asked the same question to James and John, and I think you guys covered that last week. And they wanted to sit with Jesus, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. What a bold request. This is a a request that was pursuing pride and position. But Bartimaeus, he simply wants to be able to see. He's not looking for position. He's simply looking for his sight to be restored. And when you realize that these encounters are symbolic of spiritual realities, you recognize that James and John wanted position in the kingdom, but Bartimaeus simply wants entrance into the kingdom. We're not to be concerned about position in the kingdom. It is by God's grace and his mercy that we even get in the kingdom. That should satisfy us. But oh, how we allow our sin even to complicate beautiful, wonderful realities of entrance. It's a hard question, but there's a a humble revelation now. It's something worth us taking notice of. Bartimaeus, having identified Jesus as the son of David, now addresses him as rabbi, which in the, the case of the Aramaic language is a word for Lord and Master. You see, Bartimaeus knows his condition. He's poor, he's blind, he's miserable, he's he's despised. But that only drives him to desperately ask for mercy. He simply wants to see. He simply wants into the kingdom of God. And he places himself under the one he knows is the Lord and Master. In fact, in some translations, it's not translated rabbi, it's translated rabbani, which is a little different word than rabbi, which is where we get this understanding from. Now, it's really a a wonderful thing. He's recognizing now who ultimately is in charge. And as a result of, of what happens here, there is a radical transformation, a radical transformation. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The words of Jesus. Only Jesus, the master teacher, can open your eyes and make you see. See, at the end of this journey, Jesus is driving home this reality. All these things I've taught you about now are encompassed in this encounter with this blind beggar. Only I can open up your eyes. Only I can give you the ability to see. We're either blind Or our faith is fuzzy, but only Jesus can restore our sight. Only Jesus can give us that faith, that he is our only hope, that he is the only answer, that he is the one who has come to deliver us. And it's a reminder again of what Isaiah promises in Isaiah 42 and verse 16. He says this, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Jesus' words were sweet. They were wonderful. They were powerful. They were releasing. But notice the response of Bartimaeus. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. That, that word immediately is obviously Mark's favorite word. I mean, what, boom, from one encounter to the next. But what Jesus does, he does in a moment. 
I mean, there was a moment when I was, when I was contemplating the gospel. There was a moment when, when God breathed life into my heart, and boom, I was able to see by his grace. Immediately it happened, and there's a change, a change in attitude, a change in focus, a change in desires. And Jesus said to Bartimaeus, go your way, but Bartimaeus decides to go on the way with Jesus. And here's what we see from the response of Bartimaeus, three things. First of all, there's abandon, right? He threw off his cloak. Secondly, there was this regeneration or conversion. He recovered his sight. And then there's discipleship. He followed Jesus. I mean, conversion just simply means now discipleship, right? I mean, this is where he should be. He is actually brought into this discipleship group that are following him on the way. This reminds me of a well-known Fanny Crosby hymn, which has special understanding when you understand that she was a blind hymn writer. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I mean, you can just imagine the kind of thoughts that are going through Bartimaeus' heart right now. He's following the Savior. He's trusted him. He's going on the way with him. He can see physically and spiritually. And let me tell you something. The spiritual is far more important than the physical. Now let's just bring this to a close. Just a couple of quick notes, and then I have three things that I want to leave us to contemplate with. First of all, some quick notes here. We've learned about identity, mission, and response. First of all, identity. Who is Jesus? We've seen that he is man. His name, Jesus, son of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah, right? Son of David. He is also Master, Rabbi. Again, we're learning more things about who Jesus is. We're understanding his character. We're understanding what he has come to do. That's the second one, his mission. What has Jesus come to do? He's come to go on a journey to Jerusalem in order to die. And on the way, he's taking disciples with him, and he calls us to join him on the way to give us eyes to see the beauty of his love, his kingdom, and his gospel. And then, of course, the word response. What is our response? Hearing, believing, abandoning, following. It's a wonderful picture. And if you're a child of God, it's your picture. It's my picture. This is what Jesus does to we who are all or who were all blind beggars. Now there's three issues I want to draw out here that I think are really important for us to consider now. And I I want you to hear this please from a, a pastoral heart pleading for you to consider these things. Number one, what do you want me to do for you is the most important question God will ever ask. Unfortunately, it's, it's the one question to which people most frequently give the wrong answer. We ask for all the wrong things in life. Now, two notable answers that we find coming from the page of Mark's gospel would be Herod, who's asking his stepdaughter essentially the same question. Ask for me anything you want. You have the opportunity to ask anything you want, and you ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter? What a waste of a response. And then there's Pilate in a few chapters here who will ask the crowd the same question, what do you want? And the answer is, we want Barabbas, and we want you to crucify him. What is your response? Jesus comes presenting himself, presenting his gospel and saying, respond by faith. Believe in me. Our answer to this question will reveal whether we want death or whether we want life. 
whether we want to be healed from our blindness or selfishly want to use God to do our own bidding to fulfill our own selfish desires. There's so many people that darken the door of church not because they care about the gospel, but because they like the fact that church brings about things that benefit them. What they desperately need is the gospel. Secondly, sorry, I thought that was up there. Opportunity knocks. There's an urgency in this text, isn't there? If Bartimaeus is going to be healed by the son of David, he must act and he must act now. He must abandon the things that are obstacles to his faith. And there are obstacles that might hinder us from coming to Jesus. Let me just list a few here. You don't have to get them all down. I think you know them. Number one, I am unworthy. And my answer to you is, yes, you are. That's the point. Secondly, I have done too many bad things. Yep, you probably have. (laughs) All the more reason for you to come to Jesus. But I'm not good enough. I I have to get my life in order. You will never get your life in order enough to somehow feel worthy of coming to Christ. What will my family think? They might reject me. That's true. But you won't be the first person this has happened to. And you won't be the last. And the reality is that God might actually bring you to himself because you are now in a family that doesn't know him and you may be the vehicle by which the gospel then goes to your family. Having gone through all sorts of struggle and rejection and stuff, they eventually embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. You don't know those things. What will my friends think? What will the world around me think? That you're insane that you're a loser, that you're a weak person, that you're gullible, that you're a fool, that you're a hater, all of the above. But remember what Scripture teaches. It's the fool that has said in his heart what? There is no God. They can call you all you want, all sorts of things, but Scripture says the person's a fool who says there is no God. Or as we heard a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Friends, the the wisdom of the world just seems overwhelming. I tell you, even today, just the way the the wisdom of the world is just like this this smoke that's just invading everything. And at times you feel very intimidated by it. But hear this, the gospel penetrates all of that to do its work. Jesus is not stiff-arming you to believe. He doesn't work that way but he does apply pressure by means of Holy Spirit conviction. You have to get up, come to him in repentance and faith. By that, I don't physically mean get up. I mean in your heart, you're saying, I am letting go of all those things that I have placed my trust in and I'm abandoning them and I'm coming by faith to Jesus for this salvation that he has offered for me because of his work on the cross. There may be obstacles, but now is the opportunity. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Come running to Jesus believing. Opportunity knocks. What will you do with it? Third, And this kind of builds on the first two. It takes courage to step out in faith and believe the gospel. You know, I think there was a time in American Christianity where, or even Christian culture, or American culture, where it was a little bit more acceptable and positive. But today, it takes courage. 
I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I have been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. I'm born again. And the world laughs and scorns. It takes courage to step out in faith and believe the gospel. Throwing off your cloak, letting go of your idols, relinquishing your status and your security. Friends, Jesus isn't interested in some mamby-pamby response to his gospel. He isn't interested in handing out tickets to heaven that come with cheap grace. There is a cost, there is a price to be paid on the cross as Jesus suffered in our place. And there's a cost to the one who will be his disciple, denying self, taking up the cross daily and following him. You see, there's been so much easy believism in America that many people, even in the context of church, have not truly embraced the gospel. Because they, I got my ticket to heaven. I can still live like I want. I got my ticket to heaven. No, you don't. Because that ticket wasn't paid for by the blood of the Lamb. My friends, there's a need for us to recognize that there is a cost. Remember, the gospel is easy. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be like this child coming with desperation, but it's supposed to be hard that we contemplate the the, the difficulty and the cost of what it means to come to Jesus, and that means we abandon everything for Christ. And what happens in that? And the reality is we abandon everything, and we come to Christ But then by virtue of Christ, we're able to look at those everythings in new light. So we don't say to our family, well, I'm done with you. What it means is, now having come to Christ, I look at my family afresh through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and I take responsibility. It's a new responsibility. I've abandoned the old ways, and the new ways now are the means by which I am approaching these responsibilities that he's given me. Now, many of you, I'm sure, heard the the sad news this weekend of the French police officer, Lieutenant Arnaud Beltram, who willingly exchanged places with a female hostage um, held by a terrorist. And he willingly placed himself in harm's way in order to be sure that she was safe and unharmed. And unfortunately, when his fellow officers stormed in the apprehended terrorist, or to apprehend him, the terrorist turned on this French officer, shot him, stabbed him to death. He lost his life. He is an example of what a true hero is. I mean, no one likes any police officer to lose their lives, but he knew what was at stake. He knew the price potentially that he would have to pay, and he willingly gave his life for another. My friends, that was heroic. It was, it was something that his name needs to be imprinted in our memory from a human perspective. That Jesus went to a cross not just for you, but for the whole world. Not just for one person who was in bondage close to death, but for the whole world. Imagine the heroic act done by that French officer, but multiplied millions and millions and millions of times before millions of people for whom Christ died. But Jesus isn't a hero because he simply died a death that we deserved. It isn't just that he died, but it's what he died for. Anyone can die for someone else. But Jesus hung on that cross as that sacrifice once for all. And in hanging on that cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, a wrath that we deserved. It was a spiritual death that he experienced for us. And by virtue of what he has accomplished, we now live He was a sacrifice, a payment, a ransom for all who believe. Has Jesus opened your eyes? How will you respond? Lord, help us today. It seems like such a simple encounter that this blind man has with you. And yet it is packed the spiritual symbolism because of the things that you have been saying and because you have come 
to give the blind sight. And Lord, by that, we know, yes, while you were on earth, you, you heal people of their blindness and you're able to see, but all that was done, Lord, for spiritual purposes, Lord. Ultimately, you wanted to show us what, what it means to come to you, that we truly are blind beggars sitting on the road in need of healing. And Lord, you are the one who has come to heal us. And Lord, as, as we respond to you, you, you open up, Lord, the, those, those cataracts, so to speak, that are on our eyes, and you, you allow us to see afresh. What a picture of a, of a beautiful Savior accomplishing the most magnificent sacrifice and act of mercy and love for us, for each of us. May we respond in praise. May we respond by faith and believing, may we respond by ongoing repentance because you are our great God and Savior. Lord, may this embolden us now to step out maybe from being on the sidelines and getting back on the path and the journey with Jesus to do the mission that he's called us to do and to do it, Lord, for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.